The second scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew. I will read chapter 22, verses 34 through 46. Listen now for the word of the Lord. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, an expert in the law, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David by the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one was able to give him an answer, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Michael and Sophia and I took our first trip to Scotland last summer. It was for me the only time I have been in a country where the national church is Calvinist Presbyterian. After working with John Calvin and others in Geneva, John Knox returned to Scotland in 1559 to launch the Scottish Reformation, which established Presbyterianism as the Kirk of Scotland. There are Presbyterian churches everywhere in Scotland, and while I was feeling strangely at home because of this, I was also feeling rather sad to see so many of them closed or turned into restaurants, nightclubs, coffee shops. The repurposing of so many church buildings seemed to be a sign of the times. We live in an era of secularization. We have been in this era for quite a while. The first use of the term secular is from the 16th century, referring to the transforming of ecclesiastical possessions for civil purposes, such as monasteries into hospitals. It might be surprising to find some traces of secularization as early as in the Bible. I have wondered if Jesus' teaching about giving to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God might express a principle from which some of the core principles of secularism eventually arose. For the most part, secularization is the historical process in which 
religious authority gets separated from the various spheres of life. Most universities today exemplify this. The religion department is just one of many departments. The divinity school is separate from the medical school, the law school, business school, school for government and public policy. Secularization has been part of Christianity's history for a long time. And some of its core principles may have even arisen from Christianity. Our first scripture lesson from the 19th chapter of Leviticus reflects a time when an opposite impulse seems to have been at work. Chapters 17 through 26 comprise what biblical scholars call the holiness code. Priestly scribes wanted to extend holiness beyond worship in the temple into and throughout the daily lives of all the people. At the time that these chapters were written, the drive for holiness gathered speed and overflowed. The concern was no longer maintaining a holy sanctuary, but rather forming a holy people. The people dared to dream of lives as potent, sanctified, and overflowing as the smoke of their burnt offerings. The passage Jim read this morning was the thematic core of the Holiness Code. It was the Lord's call, not just to the priestly caste, but to the entire congregation to be holy. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. To be holy means, and meant back then, to be distinct, holy other, beyond the mundane. At times in human history, the term was interpreted with an emphasis on setting apart the holy from everything else. We see evidence of such an emphasis in some of the ancient purity laws about temple rituals. At the time when the Holiness Code was being written, however, the people began to imagine all kinds of holy possibilities. Rather than confining holiness to the temple, they began to consider what might God mean by telling them as they live out their daily lives to be holy as God is holy. This is a question for every person who strives to be faithful to God to consider. What does it mean to be holy as God is holy? Even though I'm a pastor, I don't think I've ever said to myself that I need to be holy, that I must strive to live a holy life. I don't think I have ever said to anyone, not even to my daughter, be holy as God is holy. Perhaps these words sound as strange to you as they do to me. No doubt, their strangeness is a sign of our times. Given that we have lived our whole lives in an era of secularization, it is perhaps all the more challenging for us to consider how we could possibly live holy lives, not in the sense of being set apart, 
increasingly confined to a particular place of worship, day of worship, hour of worship, with people who worship, but in an expansive sense of holy possibilities. Now that I am a parent of a young adult who no longer lives at home and who can choose for herself where, when, with whom, and how to spend her time, I feel a greater sense of urgency to discover these holy possibilities so that I can share them with her. <laughs> Concerned that our young people grow up rarely, if ever, seeing us bring our religious selves outside of this realm and out into all the various spheres of, life's, of life where we work, go to school, deliberate about politics, vote, and volunteer, our friendships, book clubs, organizations, and even our homes. I have been trying to imagine what it could be like to bring our deepest values and live out our faith in God in all the realms of our lives. In other words, what might it be like to be holy in the whole of our lives as God is holy? Whereas we don't talk much out there in all the realms of our lives about being holy, on my observation, we do talk and hear a lot about things that are evil. We don't always use the term evil, certainly not as often as the term may have been used in an earlier era. While the term may not be used as commonly, the phenomenon of, of evil certainly continues. In a book entitled Out of Eden, Paul Kahn, who is a professor of law and humanities at Yale Law School and director of the Center for Human Rights at Yale University, examines how evil is treated in the Judeo-Christian religious tradition as well as in secular Western society. In his book, he raises the insight that in our secular society, we have been treating evil as though it could be remedied by law enforcement, the judicial system, institutional administrative policies and procedures, therapy, and education. These are all secular efforts that are committed to the idea that reason is the remedy to evil. If only people were more reasonable, if only people were more educated about the difference between good and bad, right and wrong, if only society were more just so that people were given what they are actually due, if only. In reality, Paul Kahn argues, people do not commit evil acts because they're irrational or uneducated or fail to understand what justice requires, though these conditions might be at play. Evil cannot be reasoned or legislated out of existence. While all these reasonable efforts are powerful and crucial enterprises for society, when it comes to evil, Something broader and deeper is at stake than what reason can remedy and reform. The problem of evil arises when the will within us 
not our reason, insists that it is the source of its own meaning. When our will insists that we will be dependent upon nothing beyond ourselves. In other words, evil arises when we willfully refuse to acknowledge, be vulnerable to, and trust in that which is holy. In this way, evil is more of an existential posture, a way of being that cannot bear to place one's own life in the hands of another. And so it willfully acts to prevent this at all costs. The opposite of evil is love. Love, too, is ultimately an act of the will, not of reason. Love, too, is an existential posture, a way of being. But unlike evil, love acknowledges the holy in God and others. In loving, we are willing to be vulnerable to, to trust in, to place our lives in the hands of another. We're even willing to sacrifice ourselves for another. What Paul Kahn argues is that only love can be a remedy to evil. One of the challenges we sometimes encounter when we love someone is that for the sake of love, we place those we love against the demands of justice. We privilege our own children over the just demands of other equally deserving children. We protect our families at a cost to others, even when there is no just reason to make others bear that cost. For the love of nation, we protect our community while we ignore the equally just demands of outsiders. If necessary, tragically, we even injure innocent people for the sake of protecting those we love. Our loving relationship can privilege the beloved in a way that is in tension with the obligations of justice. Perhaps this is why Jesus committed and com com compiled and ordered Scripture's commandments to love as he did. Taking the second commandment to love one's neighbor as oneself from the holiness code. Jesus knew that the command to love one's neighbor as oneself has written into it a sense of justice that requires us to go beyond ourselves, beyond our love of family and tribe. As we heard in Leviticus 19, the commandment is spelled out with content having to do with justice. You shall not render an unjust judgment you shall not be partial. You shall not profit by the blood of your neighbor. The further we give love content that extends justice beyond ourselves, our family, our tribe, the more holy our love is. The funny thing is, the more we extend such love into the universe, the more we love people we haven't even met, much less owe anything to, we go far beyond the reasonable demands of justice. In this way, love is capable of so much more than justice. 
So Jesus teaches us that the greatest and first commandment is to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. In this teaching, Jesus teaches us that to love God is to love all whom God loves. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, this is the interpretation so important to Jesus. It is seen in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. And so it is that we are to love our enemies and not only those who love us. There is no reasonable way to measure and match the love we receive and give. There is no way I could reasonably measure and match the love I have received from my parents. There is no way we could measure and match the love that we have received from God. That is the unreasonable, holy way of love to which we are called. So let us say to one another, be holy, for the Lord our God is holy. Amen.